This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. No one could imagine that I would end up being in this place because I, I'm innocent. Do you think about your parents? Every day. And we think about all the good times that we had together. I'm Erin Moriarty, and this is my life of crime. In September 1988, 17-year-old Marty Tankliff was arrested and charged with murdering his parents, Arlene and Seymour Tankliff. The investigation conducted by Suffolk County, New York police detectives was basically over in a day. They said Marty admitted to the killings. Marty said he was coerced to confess by the detective's relentless questioning. It was the constant barrage that, you know, Marty, we know you did it. Everything will be okay. Just tell us you did it. We know you did it. And it was the on and on and on questioning over and over. Even though Marty almost immediately recanted that confession, it was too late. At trial, his alleged confession and lack of emotion on the stand were enough to convince a jury to convict him of two second-degree murders. Sentenced to 50 years to life behind bars, Marty got to work appealing his conviction. Um, I spend hours working on my case every day. Um, It's a struggle. It took almost two decades, but Marty struggled to find out what happened to his parents paid off. And what a tale it turned out to be, with longtime career criminals playing starring roles with alleged connections to his father's business partner. That's part two of Fight for Truth. I never worked a case where I put so much heart and time into bringing a man home because of an injustice. The real hero of this story, when it's all said and done, may be Jay Salpeter, a retired New York City police detective who agreed to help Marty prove his innocence. Salpeter was the quintessential New York cop. He had a New York swagger with a Long Island accent to match. From the beginning, Salpeter had questions about Marty's guilt. There were the inconsistencies between Marty's so-called confession and the evidence collected at the crime scene. 
But the biggest crack in the case came when Jay Salpeter found a new witness who claimed he was there the night of the murders. This witness said he knew who the real killers were. I'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to bring in the person you met in part one, Gail Zimmerman, a retired 48 Hours producer. Marty's case was essentially the first questionable conviction that we tackled on the show. Gail, when I look back on this, we were we were doing something that just wasn't done. We were saying they screwed up. They put the wrong person behind bars, and here's why. Because not only can we show you there's no real evidence to point to Marty, we think we know who did it. That's the moment where I thought, gee, we kind of are out on a limb. <laughs> you know? And maybe this is, I mean, we were just reporting what we found, and I thought this was just another 48-hour story. But at that point, I'm thinking, we are doing something unusual here. We were. So how it started, really, what we reported in the first is that uh, Jay Salpeter, when he started doing some research, uh, found a guy by the name of Glenn Harris. This is a guy who's a career criminal and he does burglaries. That's what he does. Glenn Harris really lived a life of crime. But what happened back in September 1988, he says, ate at him. He couldn't shake off what he knew. And so 14 years after the murders of Arlene and Seymour, Harris said he was finally ready to break his silence. I thought if I could do something right for somebody else, I'd be helping myself. In a notarized sworn affidavit, Harris claimed that on that September night, he was the getaway driver for what he thought was a home burglary. He was escorting a guy by the name of Joseph Creighton, known in criminal circles as Joey Guns, and another man, Peter Kent. Both had long criminal records. Harris said Joey Guns directed him to an upscale neighborhood on Beltaire, Long Island, and told him to stop in front of a house. I sat down with Glenn Harris to talk about what he remembered. When they returned to the car, were you aware of what happened? I knew something happened. Their demeanor, their behavior, uh, it wasn't normal. And what were your feelings? Do you remember that something feeling? more than a burglary happened. Usually when you commit a burglary, there's proceeds of something, and that wasn't there. And can you tell me what their demeanor was? Uh, extremely nervous, winded. <sighs> Creedence, anxiousness to get out of there. Harris said that he later saw Peter Kent burning the clothing he had worn that night, and he wondered, why would Kent do that after a burglary? Later, when he heard about the Tankliff murders, he said he put two and two together. Here's my colleague, Gail, again. And then later on, he confessed to a priest about that he never came forward about this. And word got out and Jay found him. He couldn't say for sure that he had driven the killers of Arlene and Seymour Tankliff, but he believed he did because yeah. he didn't have any of the kinds of proceeds from a burglary. One of the people in the car was Joe Creedon, Joey Guns. And of course, he would not talk with us. Just to be clear, when Harris confessed to a priest, Harris told him that he wanted to make amends. So the priest started asking around, and that's how Jay Salpeter heard about it. Why does it matter? Jay says that the man known as Joey Guns Creedon 
was connected to the son of Seymour Tankless business partner, Jerry Stewerman. This is not a random hit. The same Jerry Stewerman who owned a bagel shop with Seymour Tankliff and owed a lot of money to him. Sal Peter believed he hired Creedon to kill Seymour at home on the night that Stewerman was there playing poker. My scenario is that Seymour is sitting at the desk. Jerry Stewerman is talking to him, keeping Seymour's attention on Jerry. And here come Peter Kent, Joseph Creedon through the back. And they took Seymour out, and then they went for Mrs. Tankloff. Police never considered Stewerman a suspect, and at Marty's trial, he testified that he had nothing to do with the Tankloff murders. But the new evidence provided by Glenn Harris was a major break in the case, and it came at just the right time, too. Marty Tankliff was granted a new hearing in 2004. As the hearing began, Marty's family rallied around him in full support. The victim's family are Marty's family, and that's their relative who they stand behind 100% They know that Marty Tankliff did not do this crime. But it's not easy to overturn a murder conviction. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office was ready for battle, and the Assistant District Attorney, Leonard Lado, handling the post-conviction appeal, said he was confident Marty would remain behind bars. There's a verdict, there are appeals, there have been federal habeas petitions. He's lost. Lato scoffed at Glenn Harris's story, and it didn't help that when Harris took the stand at the hearing, he refused to testify. He had told his priest that he was concerned that he could be charged with the murders. In my view, he was never going to testify. But Glenn Harris wasn't the only one who came forward with new information. Marty's team tracked down several new witnesses who testified against Joey Gunn's Creedon. There's a man by the name of Joe Graydon who said he and Creedon had been hired to ambush a man he later believed was Seymour Tankliff, but it was an ambush that failed. We had to go up to the bagel store to make it look like a robbery. He wasn't there. We missed him. Supposed to catch him coming out of the back. And there was Bill Ram, a convicted drug dealer, who told us that Creedon first approached him to be the getaway driver that night in September. He said, I'm working for somebody um, who's got a partner in the bagel business that needs to be straightened out. He said, you know, there's some money in it for me if we go there and just, you know, he's going to threaten the guy or rough him up. Gail and I were suddenly faced in, in covering this story. We were dealing with people we don't normally deal with, career criminals, vicious criminals, Bill Ram. Uh, he was a career criminal, but he was out. He was he had turned his life around, and he was very clear about how he had seen Joey Creedon and Glenn Harris and Peter Kent, all these guys together on the night, of course, that uh, the Tanklets were murdered. So Gail and I were planning on interviewing him, and he was in Florida. And so we flew down there, and he was a great interview. This story was developing in a way we never imagined. Bill Ram told us that he turned down the job that Glenn Harris supposedly later took on. 
I asked Marty what it was like to hear these testimonies at this hearing after so many years. What surprised you the most that you've heard from these witnesses? Their honesty. Um, that, you know, after all these years that they would come forward and admit their involvement in such brutal crimes. The state questioned Glenn Harris's credibility because he was a career criminal. And that might make sense, except when it was the DA's turn to bring witnesses. Who did they put on the stand? Peter Kent, another career criminal. The same man whom Harris said was in the car that night and later burned his clothing. Peter Kent, however, said that neither he nor Joey Guns was involved in the Tankliff murders. Joey was not the killer for these murders. I know that because he was not with me that night and we didn't do this with Glenn. It never happened. And then the state calls yet another career criminal, Joey Guns Creedon himself. Now, this is a really bad guy with a criminal history of convictions for both rape and grand larceny. But that's who the state is relying on to keep Marty in prison. Creedon also denied that he killed the Tankliffs. When Joe Creedon takes the stand, he admits in front of everyone that he was a a drug enforcer and uh, he would use cigarettes um, on people's bodies to get them to pay the money they owed. And, you know, it's amusing and you're watching a gangster movie And then it hits you, no, this is real. And there are real people that this guy is torturing. Um, he, He was a violent, violent guy. And in fact, there are more than a dozen new witnesses who claim Creedon was involved in the murders, including a woman by the name of Carlene Kovacs. She told me that she met Creedon at a party and claimed he bragged about killing the Tankliffs. You really believe when he said he was involved in the tank of murders that he was telling the truth? Oh, yeah, definitely. But the most damaging witness came forward after seeing our original show on the Tankliff case. His name, Joe Garasio. It was Joey Creedon's own son. He said that after watching our report, he decided to confront his father to get to the truth. Dad, you know, tell me, did you really do this? He tells me, yes, I did do it. It had to be a tough thing for the young man to deal with. He didn't tell anyone for months, grappling with the idea that his dad was a killer. When he finally told his mother, she convinced him to testify and called private investigator J. Sal Peter. He was very troubled with the idea that his father could have been involved in a murder. He was very troubled by it. And let's paint a picture of Joe Creed and Joey Gunn's This is a guy who collected money for drug dealers and used brutal, brutal methods to do it. For whatever reason, this guy was not in prison for other crimes he committed. By his own admission, he used violent methods to collect this money and and confronted people. And his son loved him, yes, but I think was intimidated by him as well. But Assistant DA Leonard Lato says that Garacio was testifying just to get back at his father and told us that he didn't believe any of these new witnesses. The people who implicated Creedon, they all admitted one thing. Uh, They all hated him. That's a reason to say things about a person that isn't true. The prosecutor handling the case, Lenny Leto, he was saying, because we confronted him, by this point they had many, many witnesses who Joey Guns had said, I did this to. And his answer was, people confess falsely to things all the time, except Marty, 
Um, and, you know, people say, I still remember this quote, people claim they killed President Kennedy and they didn't. Right. So they could believe these really bad guys had lied and had bragged and about something they didn't do. But they couldn't believe that Marty Tankliff, a 17-year-old yeah. boy who has just been confronted with the death of his parents, might have a false confession. That's that's really the bottom line here. The official stance of Suffolk County was that they were open to a new investigation. But we later learned, no, they just wanted to defend their conviction. It was very mysterious why Joey Guns and some others, too, we're still out roaming around society. I don't understand why the state was so determined to keep Marty in prison that they would rely on the words of a bunch of criminals who had a real reason to lie and then discount the words of ordinary citizens. It didn't make sense to me then, and it doesn't now. I remember worrying about Marty. His team put on such a strong case. But whom would the judge believe? Marty had already spent 16 years behind bars. Would the judge leave him there? Or would he overturn Marty's conviction and give him a new trial? Those answers may surprise you, and they're coming up right after this break. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. In March 2006, 18 months after Marty Tankliff's post-conviction hearing began, there was finally a decision. But it's a heartbreaking one. The judge dismissed the new evidence and witnesses. He upheld Marty's conviction and denied him a new trial. We had to go back to the office, and I remember people going, well, Aaron... If Marty Tankliff is innocent, why why did he lose this this hearing? And often it's because it's not it's a judge weighing how credible that evidence is. It's really not about whether Marty did it or not. That's that was long gone. That was the first trial. It's just saying is there enough evidence to believe by um, clear and convincing evidence that this guy is innocent. And apparently that judge did not agree. Well, Marty and his attorneys appealed it. And to Marty's joy, the New York Appellate Court agreed to hear his appeal. Gail and I were both there in October 2007 when a panel of four judges heard Marty's appeal. The courtroom was packed with Tankless supporters including one with Hollywood star power. And here's another thing that 48 Hours did. We got a hero, a person that everyone knew, James Gandolfini, to see it and decide, wait a minute, I'm going to help Marty Tankliff. Now, Gail and I were, we were a little starstruck, let's admit it, we were. Oh, yeah. We were. (laughs) We were starstruck that our show would get someone who would 
put his weight there. Now, he never did an interview with us, my big disappointment. Um, But I got to sit next to him when the appeal went in front of the appellate judges. I don't think it hurt when those judges saw James Gandolfini standing right there, sitting there in the courtroom. James Gandolfini even visited Marty in an upstate New York prison. You know, he knew I was innocent, he believed in me, and he would do anything he can to help out. This time, Marty's defense team used a different tactic. They argued that even though some of their witnesses did have criminal records, they were still credible as a group for this one reason, because the other witnesses who came forward were all telling basically the same story. Here's private investigator Jay Salpeter. They came from different walks of life, different communities. So how do you get 20 people to lie, to come in and just make up a story that's consistent with each one and all name the same people? Marty's fate was now in the hands of four judges. And I'll never forget getting the call with the news. 19 years after Seymour and Arlene Tankliff were murdered, 17 years after their son went to prison, Marty Tankliff's conviction had been overturned, and it was a unanimous decision. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was given my life back. I mean, literally in a 10-day period, I went from a prison cell, serving 50 years to life, to being back with my family. Was there any side of you, Marty, a little scared of getting out? You had spent your entire adult life in prison. I was ready for everything. That was the very first time you and I saw someone walk out of prison, in part because of our reporting. It was very exciting, very exciting. And it's interesting, too, because the decision... You know, it's not like hearing a verdict. You're waiting for a written decision and it could come and somebody just calls you up and tells you what happened. And suddenly everything changes. It was a homecoming nearly two decades in the making. Outside the courthouse, Marty spoke to the press, flanked by his family and supporters. Marty Tankliff is coming back in now to go before the microphones to talk to the media along with his family and friends. Just mind-boggling. And I walked in there. I don't remember what I said, really. I remember just seeing all the family crying, and I just remember hugging everybody. I wouldn't have wanted it any better way, having all my family together. Marty's freedom was in large part because of one person, Jay Salpeter, the man who found so much new evidence in the case. Still a little hard to believe? Yeah, I mean, I, to, you know, it just came so suddenly. You know what? We, we, we lost the battle, but today we won the war. This is a man who gave me my life back. It was his dedication that saved me. Marty wasn't free and clear yet. The state of New York had to decide if they would retry him for his parents' murders. But he was allowed out of prison in the meantime. He was released and would live with his cousin, Ron Falby. There was a long-awaited celebration at home. I walked into my family's house that was filled with friends and family, and it was a loving, caring, warm environment. But the world had changed a lot while Marty was locked up. The shock was the technology. You know, sending an, uh, you know, an email across the world and getting a response back in three seconds. Never knew that was possible. When was the lowest period in all of this? Was there one really low period? 
every day in prison is a low period. You know, you wake up and the smells, the sounds, the noise, that's the low period. And you have to force yourself to get past that period to kind of get through the day. New York's governor appointed a special prosecutor from the attorney general's office to investigate and determine once and for all whether Marty should be retried for the murder of his parents. And after six months of freedom, he returned to court. All rise. Supreme Court of Suffolk County, criminal term part five is now in session. That although there is some evidence that Mr. Tangle committed the crimes charged, the evidence is insufficient to conclude or to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did so. The people hereby move to dismiss indictments. You heard it correctly. The Attorney General's Office of New York asked the court to drop all charges. At 36 years old, Marty got his life back. The shock of everything hasn't really, it's, it's still a shock. As I sit here today, I am a free man. I can go on with my life and go to college and you know, do good things. I think altogether we did five stories um, on the Marty Tankliff case. And the importance of doing stories like this that we found later was when we first did a story on Marty, when we aired the very first one, and we had to talk about his quote-unquote confession, the alleged confession, People would write me and say, Aaron, he had to have done it because, you know, I I would never confess something I, would I didn't never do. Confess to He's something a wealthy yes. kid. There's no way. In the beginning, we spent a lot of time explaining how a false confession happens, how especially with a teenager, you just want to get out of that situation. You're not thinking of long term consequences and you'll say anything, or go along with anything. Fast forward to now. And all of a sudden I'm hearing from people going, oh. That's a coerced confession, Erin. So I think doing these stories educates the public and lets them know what can go wrong. It's one of the stories we're most proud of. Yes, It's that simple. In a kind of cliche word, it's empowering. It's empowering to know that you have an impact. And I can't stress enough how hard it is to get a conviction overturned, especially without DNA. It's very, very hard. The courts are geared to maintain convictions and it's really, it's very empowering when you could see something go right. And it was all worth it because Marty Tankliff is now a free man. He's a lawyer now. <laughs> He's a lawyer now. Not only yeah. did he go to law school, graduate from law school, but he does wrongful convictions. Um, something he would have never done in his life had this not happened. In 2018, Marty reached a $10 million settlement with Suffolk County, New York. After he got out of prison, he went to college and then law school and is now working as a defense attorney. What's more, Marty also teaches a wrongful conviction course at Georgetown University. In 2022, he was awarded their prestigious Mullen professorship. No one has ever been charged with the murder of Marty's parents. And there's a sad postscript, and it involves that incredible private detective, Jay Salpeter. When Marty first hired Jay, he paid him $5,000. While Jay gained a lot of attention, fame, and admiration, he didn't get any more money, and that apparently bothered him. In April 2022, Jay pleaded guilty to aggravated harassment, and Marty was given an order of protection. 
It was an upsetting end to an amazing partnership between a man trapped behind bars and the private detective who fought so hard to get him out. And it was a humiliating end to what was a great career. Still, I'll always think of Jay as the best private eye I ever worked with. He made a huge difference in a man's life, and no one can take that away from him. I'm Erin Moriarty, and that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio and Paramount. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Megan Marcus is vice president for podcast editorial at Paramount. Production and editing for this season by Caroline Casey, Annie Cronenberg, Megan Marcus, Kiara Norbitz, and Alan Pang, with a special thanks to Jamie Benson. This episode was also produced by Gail Zimmerman of 48 Hours. And finally, a thanks to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on X, and we're at 48 Hours on X, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.